Eagles Entertainment. The journey to the draft is driven by AAA. AAA, roadside is their strong side. Make AAA a part of your game day today. AAA, go ahead. With the 25th pick in the NFL draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select. You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. I'm your host, Fran Duffy. Thanksgiving in the rearview mirror. It is past us, and it's kind of a tentpole for college football as things are beginning to start taking shape around the country with the college football playoff. What will the postseason look like in this unique college football year? Well, it'll be interesting. It'll be up to much debate, obviously, over the next few weeks. But the NFL Draft... Teams are starting to get more and more and more interested in who these top prospects are. So make sure you're tuned in right here on the Journey of the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. We are always here twice a week, and these early week episodes – when we're in season, all have the kind of kind of the same format. We're going to start things off with our scout stories. We are the only NFL draft podcast that has a current NFL scout on the show each and every week. And this week, Senior Director of College Scouting, Anthony Patch, will once again join us here on the show to talk about scouting Eagles running back Corey Clement when he was coming out of Wisconsin. So we'll talk about all the things that uh, were there with Corey when he was coming out. Really an interesting discussion here uh, that shows up with Corey Clement. I hope you guys enjoy that at the very top of the show. After that, we're going to go into Saturday Scouting, myself, Ben Fennell, Dane Brugler, a bunch of our reactions from this past week in college football. We'll talk through some senior bowl acceptances, some underclassmen declaring for the draft, and Dane's got a new mock draft, so we'll talk all about that in Saturday Scouting. Then we've got our On the Clock segment. C-Mac's going to come back to the show, and he's going to kind of moderate that debate between Ben, Dane, and I, the topic this week, who is the best red zone weapon in this draft, and then we'll wrap it up with a question from you at home in our draft mailbag. Again, the best way to throw us your support, go on to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Leave us a rating. Leave us a comment. Really appreciate everybody that has done that. It is the best way to throw us your support here on the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Let's kick things off now. Top of the show, as always, it's time for Scout Stories. Pull up a seat. It's time for Scout Stories. All right, joining us to talk about Eagles running back Corey Clement is Senior Director of College Scouting, Anthony Patch. And Patch, uh, welcome back to the show, man. I wanted to talk about uh, Eagles running back Corey Clement. And, you know, coming out, he was an undrafted free agent. Um, you know, and there was always, like, this uh, allure, you know, around the Wisconsin running backs and the production they've been able to have. But, you know, they, they didn't produce at the NFL level all the time. Uh, I'm interested to kind of get your memories on, on scouting Corey and, and your experiences with him uh, leading up to the NFL draft. Yeah, Corey had a really, you know, unfortunately for Corey at Wisconsin, um, he was hurt, you know, up to his last year, basically. I mean, he had procedure uh, a couple of times. And so really his lone year was his last year. And But he made the most of what he had that last year at Wisconsin. And, you know, he kind of fell through the cracks going undrafted, you know, because of the injury history probably. And just his testing numbers weren't great, but you know, he's, he's a local kid. He was a highly touted kid, obviously going to Wisconsin. And it's unfortunate he had that injury history going into our, at, at Wisconsin. Otherwise, you know, he, he would have been drafted for sure. But, um, you know, he ran like, I think, 1,300 yards in his last year and only season starting at Wisconsin that year. Yeah, he, and he was a guy, too, like I mentioned, you know, when you have those uh, the, that history, you know, going back to, you know, Ron Dane at Wisconsin. And, you know, so many guys that have been so productive uh, in that school despite the change in coaching staffs, despite the, the change in systems. For our listeners, you know, I feel like that gets – talked about a lot is like oh well you know stay away from the Wisconsin running back or you know back when I remember when I was in like high school it was like, oh, the, the Florida receivers don't touch the Florida receivers they never work out um how do you kind of fight through that as a scout when you're you know evaluating these guys on an individual individual basis so year over year yeah he just you know I don't know and Corey had a great senior year you know and I think he just got flooded out because you know the injuries and he didn't test well but he, you know, like I said, he ran for 1,300 yards that year, and we did the due process. He, he was a local kid, so people obviously knew him in the building and felt obviously really good after the draft. I mean, we had draftable grades across the board. So, you know, after the draft, you're thinking, you know, this guy's still on the board. Is it medical or is it, you know, the testing? And we were just happy as all get out to get him after the draft. You know, approved, you know, the one thing we didn't see at, or I didn't see when I went on the visit, you know, on teams and, Geez, Fran, I don't know his impact and special teams for us early in the career here with uh, Coach Phipp has been unbelievable. So 
that aspect he didn't see. And, you know, he, you know, he was there, you know, Melvin Gordon was before him, James White, you know, th- those guys have been good pros. So take every case by case, but, you know, we, we felt good about Corey getting where we did and what he's done for us. How do you, when you're looking at a guy that, you know, you said you couldn't necessarily predict the impact that he would have on special teams. That opening kickoff that year, the Super Bowl year, 2017, he's down there making the stop on the opening kick. Are there things that can kind of be telltale signs for those guys that weren't, didn't play special teams, uh, you know, in college because they were a full-time player on offense or defense and they just weren't asked to that say like, all right, like this guy we think could project to be able to do that for us in the NFL? Yeah, and, you know, it's, you know, I look back when I was scouting out West, you know, USC, I mean, Pete Carroll used to use all his starters on on all the cover teams, all the punt teams, on all the special teams. But then you go to some of these schools and they're just too valuable as, as seniors, to, you know, they're in a role on offense or defense that they, they don't want to risk their injury. So I, we had no idea that he would be the impact guy he was that, you know, the first couple of years he was with us. You know, even as a hands catcher, you know, Yep. Talk about that catch. You know, I just, you, you, and that's the thing I, you know, I, uh, you know, Wisconsin backs aren't, sometimes that's the knock on them. You don't see him catch the ball, but I'll tell you what, man, talk about a, a big time catch that he had for us. No question. And we wouldn't be where, what we have now in that, in that trophy case. Obviously. One of the biggest plays in Eagles history without question. So uh, Patch, thanks so much, man, for joining us once again here on the journey to draft podcast. We'll talk to you again soon, man. Hope you guys really enjoyed that conversation there uh, with Anthony Patch. Uh, and it's always great uh, to catch up with Patch this week, talking about Corey Clement and just, you know, a couple of the big things, I think, uh, with him coming out. Number one, I thought it was interesting to kind of get into the conversation with, you know, guys you know, from a specific position coming from a specific school having a little bit of a, uh, you know, a cloud based around that evaluation, right? I feel like that happens so much with uh, the media and with fans. And, uh, you know, I'm guilty of it as well. You know, when you're talking about guys that come from a specific program and having, uh, you know, that kind of moniker kind of thrown on them is, oh, well, he's a system player or you can't trust a guy from, you know, that school or, or that kind of position. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting, especially when talking about Wisconsin backs. We've seen so many of them have so much success and how you kind of get away from that. So it was cool getting Patch's feelings uh, – uh, on that, to me, the the helmet doesn't necessarily matter. I think when talking about specific positions and how they translate out of certain schemes, I think that's a little bit of a different discussion. Uh, but I think ultimately, when you're talking about all oh, you know the guys from this position group from this school, not the same conversation. So uh, I was glad that we were able to kind of separate that uh, with Patch. And then the other big thing is the special teams portion, and we talk about this uh, as often as we can here on the Journey to the Draft podcast. Is you know when you're talking about projecting guys to the NFL. Special teams is a much bigger part of the equation than people might realize, especially when you get to day three and certainly with undrafted free agents. But, you know, what can that guy provide you on fourth down? Because the the way that really kind of clarified this for me is kind of thinking about, uh, you know, roster construction and team building when we get to like late August, right? When teams all around the NFL are trying to cut their roster down to 53, what are the things that lead, what are the factors that contribute to those decisions well, very often it's special teams, right? And so uh, you often have to take those same, those same factors that apply in late August. Well, they've got to apply in late April as well. As you're trying to build these, guys, build these teams, you're looking for players that can impact you, not just on first and second down, not just on third down, but then on fourth down, what can they do for you? Do they have that ability to offer some value there, whether it's as a return specialist, as a cover guy, as a blocker? Obviously, you're not worried about it as much from, from a trench player standpoint, but what can that guy do? Because that will determine whether or not he is active or not on game day if we're talking about a role player, about a back-end roster guy. So uh, having that discussion I thought was really fun. You're talking about a running back and Corey Clement, as I said there with, with Patch, very opening kick uh, of the 2017 season – Corey Clement, who was the, the one of the heroes of the Super Bowl, is running down. He makes the tackle on the opening kickoff, and that kind of helped establish himself as a member of this team. And I think you know certainly those things play into it. We all know about Terrell Davis and what he did uh, early as, as an early young player with the Denver Broncos. Similar kind of story, right? But I think ultimately that's what allows those players to stick is that if they have that four down ability, that ability to contribute on special teams can help you land a roster spot and stick as you work your way up the ladder and then become a more you know uh, concrete player in the offense or defensive game plan. So great stuff this week from Anthony Patch. Let's now get into this weekend's action with Saturday Scouting. It's time for Saturday Scouting.
All right, time to welcome in Ben Fennel, Dane Brueger. Guys, let's talk through uh, some of the biggest notes around college football. And we'll start with some senior bowl announcements. We had three new ones uh, since we last spoke about this, and uh, all of them come in the trenches. The, after we had that overflow the last couple of weeks uh, of just name after name after name, things have slowed down a little bit. I think they're kind of fine-tuning. Some of these guys are waiting on some juniors, I would imagine, over the next couple of weeks. But three trench players, and we'll start in the American Athletic Conference with ECU left tackle Deontay Smith. Uh, Dane, I'll go to you first on Smith. I know Ben and I just got done studying him today, actually. So we'll uh, we'll give our thoughts as well. Yeah, eager to hear what you guys think. I I, I mean, I liked him as a developmental tackle. Uh, you know, he's it, they had him listed like in the three thirties uh, earlier in his career. Now he's he's back under three hundred pounds, uh, and he moves well. He's got long arms for a player who's under six five. He's got thirty five and a half inch arms, and you see that length. Um, you know, I'm, I'm eager to see him, uh, in mobile to see how he holds up uh, one-on-ones because he has some, some traits that you would like to build on and develop and maybe you have something. So, you know, if, if there's a developmental tackle you know, on day three, he, he's definitely in that category. I mean, he is a fast twitch athlete, uh, you know, gets out of his stance really quickly. I think he's got pretty light feet. His length is really impressive. Uh, he can get into defenders really fast. He's a little bit overzealous, I think, with his hands. Um, you know, he'll play out over his toes a little bit, both run game and pass game, and that can kind of throw himself off balance. But he's a plus athlete. To me, the big question will be, as he kind of gets more refined from a technical standpoint, look, I mean, you mentioned the, the weight fluctuation. From what I read in an article, he came in at under 280 this summer for training camp. Only yeah. played one game. He played against UCF in the opener and then uh, shut it down after an injury. Has not played since and will not play. Uh, is now going to enter the draft. So only one game this season. Had to dive back into some 2019 as well. But uh, I believe he played in like the 280s, 290s for a chunk of the last couple of years. So I think when you look at uh, Deontay Smith, you're looking at a guy with some athletic traits. He can get out in space. I love his play personality. His temperament is really impressive. He's constantly working to torque guys get him on the ground. We saw some impressive second level blocks. He'll get after it with double teams against three techniques as well. But uh, he's a, a interesting developmental player because he, he needs some technical refinement and some physical refinement. But I think there's some skills that are work with Ben. Yeah, absolutely. You remind me a little bit of Chris Hubbard, who came out at UAB at 290, has played a lot of swing tackle. He's playing guard mm-hmm. for the, the Browns while, while Wyatt Teller was out. You yeah. also see, I think Jim Nagley said, uh, Matt Pert at UConn last year, he's been getting some buzz uh, from scouts seeing a similar type of comp and profile, skinny waist, long arms, athletic. There's a lot to like. Yeah. I, I actually like the the Hubbard comparison a lot. I know you, uh, you came up with that when we were watching them earlier. I, I really like that comparison. Um, let's go to another one here from uh, the university of Georgia. Now at guard uh, Ben Cleveland. This is like a player I have not done. Uh, ben, I'll go to you first. What are your thoughts on the, uh, the Ben Cleveland addition to the senior? Not role? a skinny waist on this kid. I can tell you that much. He's <laughs> every bit of three thirty. He's a people mover. He's nasty. Some of the names I wrote down just for people's perspective, Mike Ayupati, you know, Craig Urbeck coming out. Uh, Luis Vasquez is a straight mauling guard he gets really good vertical displacement not the most athletic guy I don't think he's going to fit in his own scheme or even a, a scheme that wants to get guards out on the perimeter in the screen game but if for these vertical displacement power teams whether you're the Ravens or you know New England Patriots there's a type for him uh, he's played a lot of good ball he even played some right tackle early in his career at Georgia but uh, has since been pretty much the right guard third team all SEC last year showed up on the freak list for those single arm dumbbells at 160 or 170 pounds uh, so I really like him. Uh, I think he's an interesting player. He's strong. He's one of those guys where it feels like he's been in college for 10 years now. Yeah, uh, he, yeah. he started as a freshman and, you know, he's such a big guy. I mean, he, he's probably going to be around 340 when he, uh, steps on the scale. Uh, so it, it, there's things to like, I, I graded him as a late rounder. So I was a little surprised he received, uh, an invite, but it'll be a good opportunity for him. Let's get to a guy that I have studied and a player that, Dane, I know you want to talk about him later, so I won't get your thoughts on Alabama's Landon Dickerson yet. We'll come back to you on that. But, Ben, uh, you and I can talk about him a little bit. 6'5", you know, 340-plus pounds. This guy started at Florida State was a starter right away as a freshman and played all over the line. You've talked about him a little bit, his versatility, but then his size and his football IQ, I think are going to serve him very well moving to the next level. 
Yeah, absolutely. So this is a guy that was highly coveted tackle prospect out of uh, high school. He played at Florida State early in his career. Has game started at left tackle, right tackle at Florida State, comes over to Alabama, starts at right guard, left guard, and has really settled in at that center position. So a guy that's played up and down the offensive line. Some people are asking, is he like an Elton Jenkins, who's getting a lot of buzz in the Mm -hmm. NFL right now? Elton, I think, was so much more athletic and light on his feet and versatile. I think Landon Dickerson is a through and through in interior offensive lineman, some guard flexibility. This is a nasty mauling player with really good size, really good experience, good in the screen game. He can move people. He can cut off guys moving laterally left and right. He's a really fun player to watch. And for anything, he's just a nasty player. He looks for work. He finishes guys. If you're just dancing around or standing around the pile late in a play, he's going to come dump you. And I love watching those players. No question. So let's get to uh, some underclassmen uh, that are entering this draft. And we've had a couple uh, declarations over the course of the last week. And we'll start uh, at the wide receiver position from Minnesota star receiver, Rashad Bateman, likely first round pick when we get to April. Uh, This is a guy that we've talked about a lot here on the show going back to the summer. uh, He opted out initially uh, when things were looking down for the big 10, then opted back in to play the first few games. Never really quite got in sync. It seemed this year, this year as well, you know, that's the case for most of this Minnesota team, but uh, Rashad Bateman is a guy I know all three of us are really high on. Dane, no surprise here that he was opting out. You know, we've already seen him declare for the draft by opting out uh, of the 2020 season initially, but uh, Rashad Bateman calling it quits here uh, for the rest of the fall. Yeah, and I'll be honest, I, he's going to be one of the tougher evaluations for me, I think. I mean, he's obviously a good player, but how good? You know, is he top 20 good? Is he top 30 good? Uh, you know, should it be a early second round pick? I'm mean, trying to figure out exactly where he belongs uh, in the pecking order is going to be something that I know I'll struggle with, uh, you know, throughout the process, just because, you know, there's, there's a lot to like uh, with his route savvy, with his ability to, uh, you know, set up def- defensive backs and create his own separation, but he's not a burner. Uh, you worry about the speed, uh, you know, and we've seen other quote unquote slower wide receivers thrive, you know, guys like DeAndre Hopkins, guys like that, Keenan Allen, but those guys are also, I think, dominant at the catch point. And that's where Bateman is. He's good at the catch point, not dominant at the catch point. So I like Bateman. I don't want it to make it sound like I don't. It's just trying to figure out exactly where he belongs in this draft and you know how early he should be off the board. I completely agree, Dean, with the tough evaluation and where does he go in the pecking order. But I think he's going to be one of these guys that ends up being a day two player. And we reflect back on how did this guy go into day two, just like Michael Thomas and Keenan Allen, the third round and Devontae Adams in the second round, Allen Robinson. They all, none of those guys tested particularly well for whatever reason, some had injuries, some, you know, had a loose shoe or whatever, but it's that same conversation receiver that you just think is a little rich to go in round one, but we're going to reflect back in three years and say, how did this guy not go in round one? Well, let's go to another receiver, this time from the SEC, Terrace Marshall. We're going to talk about him a couple times today uh, from LSU. Had a nice game on on Saturday. I ended up watching the game. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but uh, ends up declaring for the draft afterwards. Dane, uh, were you surprised by Terrace Marshall's decision, and uh, how do you view him projecting to the league? No, no, not at all. I mean, it, this is a player who, you know, last year watched uh, uh, Jamar Chase and uh, Justin Jefferson get most of the pub, even though he had 13 touchdowns last year. Uh, and, and then he comes back this year as the team's number one. And even though there was inconsistency at quarterback, uh, he was still dominant when he had his opportunities. Love the way he uses his body downfield. He's a long athlete. That allows him to uh, kind of run away from uh, pursuit. He'll break tackles. Uh, and he accelerates really well out of his breaks. Uh, for a big guy, he'll collect his footwork, hit his stride, and go. Uh, and that allows him to finish after the catch, uh, that, those gliding strides. So uh, big fan of, of Marshall and what he can be. Just needs to uh, become a little bit more polished as a route runner, but I, I like the tools he has to work with. And I'm not sure if you guys have officials on him, but it's a rare situation. I think he's listed at 6'3". And I think he's actually 6'4". Rarely ever goes the bigger way. So I was kind of surprised to see uh, officials 6'4", 200 pounds. Yeah, I don't know if I've got officials. Dane, I don't know if you do uh, either. but I don't. Not on Marshall, I don't. All right, well, let's get to the next player here. Sam Cosme, the left tackle for the Texas Longhorns, uh, officially opts in to the uh, 2021 NFL Draft, the junior. Uh, I, I like Sam Cosme. I don't love Sam Cosme. Um, I do think that he's got NFL starter uh, in terms of uh, his potential and what the skills that we saw. We talked about him back in the summer. I think I've seen enough from him to think, okay, uh, this guy's got the ability at 6'7", 
310 pounds. He's a natural athlete. I thought he was strong enough to drop his anchor and hold his ground. He's not a, a power player at the point of attack, but he's smart. He's tough. He's long. He's athletic. I don't think that he's a, you know, a guy that is going to have a, too many issues from a physical standpoint um, to hold up. I just don't know if he's going to be a dominant you know, week in, week out player. I kind of, I comped him to Taylor Decker when he was coming out of Ohio state and Taylor Decker ended up going top 20 and has turned into a solid starter. And I kind of view that's how Sam Cosby will be. We'll see if he ends up in the first round, but uh, I, I think Cosby kind of projects similarly that way. Dane, um, would you agree with that assessment of how I view the Texas left tackle? Yeah, I, I think that your snapshot was, uh, was spot on. Um, and something that I'm encouraged with Cosme is just his improvement over the years. I mean, he, mm. he really had a problem with bull rushers uh, earlier in his career, guys that, you know, could convert that speed to power and, and get him on his heels. But because he's not the longest guy, he doesn't have super long arms. He doesn't have that powerful anchor uh, where he'll just, you know, stop rushers uh, dead in their tracks. But I think he's done a really nice job learning how to rely on his body to, and it's just his posture to create leverage. He'll bend at the knees, he'll sit in his stance, and he'll attack that power with leverage. And I think he's done a much better job of that, showing more confidence in just relying on his body to get the job done. It reminds me a little bit of Eric Fisher, not so much the number one overall prospect, but more of how he settled into that job with the Chiefs there. But this is a guy that was all over your big board last year, Dane. If he yeah. came out last year, where do you think he could have gone in the pegging order of tackles? You th- I see in November, I think you had him right in like the 60s. Uh, yeah. Seems like a pretty safe day two pick last year. I'm not sure if he improved his stock dramatically or not in 2020. Yeah, I think he would have been probably in that conversation with like an Ezra Cleveland, yep. uh, you know, somewhere in the top 50 range. And then, yeah, this year, uh, I, I know some uh, people have been talking about him as a possible top 15 pick. And I'm not sure I'm there yet, but I do think because he, the position that he plays and because I think he continues to get better, uh, there's enough there to believe he can get into the first round. Yeah, he's a, a really interesting player, and I'm, I'm glad that he came out. I'm interested to see how he ultimately stacks up in this tackle group. One last junior declaration we're going to get to today, guys, and there's a guy that declared for the draft on Monday, a name that Eagles fans are going to be very familiar with, Asante Samuel Jr. That's right, Asante's son, uh, down at Florida State, declared for the draft. Uh, Dane, what are your ultimate reactions to uh, Asante Samuel Jr. entering this class? Uh, I'm a big fan. Um, I, I think he's a first-round pick. Uh, even though he might not go that high because he's not a, the biggest guy. He's probably five, nine and a half. Um, and, you know, we don't see a lot of guys that size go first round. Uh, you know, like Jeff Gladden, he was able to sneak in there as a, as a 5'10 corner. Maybe Samuel will as well. Uh, but he love his footwork, love the feel that he shows the position. I mean, in a lot of ways, he's like his dad, where his ability to anticipate routes, trust his senses, uh, and that allows him to get a head start, make plays in the football. So he's a small guy, but he is fearless. And the reaction quickness is off the charts. So Asante Samuel is a good corner. He's going to have a long NFL career. Mm. Ben, what did you think of uh, Samuel when you've done him? Hey, he's a guy I think is just uh, done playing college ball. He wants to get to that next level. Interesting player from St. Thomas Aquinas and going right there to Florida State. These Florida State defenders, they have a lot of talent, a lot of upside, a lot of natural skill. Just really tough to evaluate them on tape over the last couple of years. It's one of these programs that kind of like Texas maybe seven, eight years ago where they weren't winning a lot of games, but all of a sudden Malcolm Brown and Jordan Hicks and Quandre Diggs and Aaron Williams and all these NFL players are coming out of there. Same thing at Florida State, a lot of talent, but you've really got to dig deep into these guys, whether it's, uh, you know, Kane Doe or Marvin Wilson or this litany of defensive backs with all sorts of talent. Asante Samuel Jr. is going to play in the league for a long time. So every once in a while, you know, one of the, the big wigs in NFL draft uh, coverage, you know, will drop like a new big board, a new top 100, a new mock draft. Ben, ben you and I, we went through uh, Mel Kuyper's big board a couple weeks ago. Well, thankfully, one of these ha- one of these things happened here this Monday. Dane Brugler dropped his newest mock draft, and we have to cover that a little bit here on the show. So, Dane, uh, I will present this to you: Zach Wilson, number two overall. What, what, let's uh, let's talk through this. What, what were the thoughts on uh, putting the BYU quarterback at number two? I guess ahead of Justin Fields. I think this will be the headline grabber for you over the next week, at least. Yeah, well, uh, tw- Twitter's absolutely in agreement, hundred percent on that. No, no, no <laughs> as qualms. they do, as they do. <laughs> yeah, no disagreements. It's it's very polite. So I really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but no, like Zach Wilson, I, I mean, I get it. The the schedule is nothing that's going to get you excited. 
But when you break down the throws, you break down his decisions. Um, I mean, there's, there's so much to like about him with his natural accuracy, uh, his ability off platform, uh, the mobility that he brings. I mean, you see flashes of Mahomes. He's not, I'm not saying he's Mahomes, but you see flashes of that with his ability to, uh, you know, work off platform. You see flashes of an Aaron Rodgers. Uh, with the way he'll torque his body and, and you know push the ball downfield, the natural accuracy that he shows is uh, it looks like it's natural to him. So I, I, I'm just, uh, I, I'm not saying that uh, you know Zach Wilson is definitely going to be the second quarterback drafted, but I do think that there will be no consensus on quarterbacks two, three, and four in this draft. I absolutely believe some teams will have Zach Wilson too. Some teams might have Fields too. Some teams might even have uh, Trey Lance at two. There will be no consensus on the order two through four, uh, although I do think Lawrence will be uh, widely believed to be that top guy. You know, Jacksonville's kind of a ball of clay right now to project forward, but I love mm-hmm. the fits for the other quarterbacks. Fields to Carolina, Trey Lance to Washington, even going down to Mac Jones to New Orleans, maybe taking over that Drew Brees uh, thrown down there. I love those three fits. And obviously it's really tough to project Zach Wilson in that Jags offense that we're expecting to be a little different, uh, you know, moving forward. Yeah. He's a, a certainly really going to drive things, yep. I mean, it, right. The, the quarterback conversation, but this year more than, more than uh, I think even previous years, because you have these teams in the mid first round, like the bears, the Patriots, the 49ers, you know, teams that could potentially move up, for one of these quarterbacks. So it's going to be really interesting. I think Dane, I, you know, Dane, he had one, one tight end, one running back, I think four yeah. receivers. This is a pretty nuts and bolts mock draft. There's a lot of trench players, a lot of tackles, yeah. you know, not a deep interior defensive line class. This is a lot of guys doing some dirty work with their hands in the ground. And seems like that's the way the NFL wants to trend. I know there's a lot of teams that need offensive linemen, need depth, need future pieces, need cornerstone tackles. Better go get them while they're out there. I think to to your point, Ben, I mean, Dane, you hit the number of four receivers in the first round <clears throat> on average it's over the last decade. It's been 3.8 receivers in the first round, you know, draft every year. So I, I think that number, but I think the uh, six the from head. last year, I think people thought this it year was off, yeah. maybe six, maybe even more. Uh, I'm going to hit you with two quick disagreements here, Dane. I love Brilliant. the mock draft, the two I would switch out. I think I have Eichenberg a little higher than Mayfield at the moment. Mm-hmm. Not sure I like the fit with the team there, but more in the tackle pecking order. And the other one interesting in there, Elijah Vera Tucker, mid-round pick, playing left tackle for USC. A lot of people projecting to guard. Similar conversation to Alex Leatherwood, playing tackle for Alabama. A lot of people think he's going to be a guard. Similar type of thing. I just have Leatherwood slightly above Vera Tucker in the pecking order. No, I, I love Vera Tucker. I mean, I liked him coming into this year. I think he was, you know, early second round for me, somewhere in the 30s. This year at left tackle, he is playing just out of his mind, I thought, just based off what I've seen, uh, the two tapes that I've watched so far. I, it, he's going to make people really think about whether or not he's a tackle uh, or a guard. We know he can play guard, but the way he's playing a tackle just really gives you more versatility. So I, I think that Vera Tucker is going to be a top 25 pick. Uh, and then Leatherwood's tough. I, I mean, I, could he sneak into the first round? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's possible. He didn't make it in this mock draft for me. But, uh, you know, he's just he's just a rock-solid player. Uh, there, and that's okay if you're an offensive lineman. There are plenty of teams that need rock-solid players. Hey, last question from me. Who is the one player that pained you to not include in that top 32? Is it Barrymore? Is it one of these loose edge rushers, whether uh, Roche or somebody like that? Uh, you know, who is that one guy that maybe hurt to not squeeze into the first round? No, I, I'm not a Roche guy, but uh, I don't – maybe Asante Samuel, who we just talked about. Um Actually, a couple of guys we just talked about, Terrace Marshall. Um, I, I went with uh, Bateman over Marshall uh, for one of the last wide receiver spots, uh, but it could easily be flipped. Uh, Asante Samley, who we just talked about, I, I think could get squeezed out because of the size. Uh, but Maybe he, Dylan you know, Moses, you know, he, he's surprising yeah. not to see him in the first round. He seems to be one of the sliders uh, going on right now. No, he, he, I mean, he, he's playing better the last two weeks, but it's been rough for him. I mean, to me, Kyle Trask, that's going to – not having Kyle Trask in the first round, I think it's going to – dominate a lot of the conversation around it but I Kyle Trask is not a first round pick I just I don't yep. see it and you know I think he's on that Mason Rudolph Nick Foles tier of, of quarterback prospects and you know that that's fine I just I don't see a first round pick uh, Mac Jones he's he's tough uh, because you know it's it's hard to separate him from the situation that he's in in Alabama 
with that elite offensive line, the wide receivers, Najee Harris, uh, the play calling. I, I mean, it's just, it's really tough to separate him from that, but all he does is execute. And so I think if you're talking late one, maybe a team like the saints, that that'd be a, a perfect fit for him to get him into that first. Who is the hardest team to pick for uh, in the first round for you? Um, you know, I, the, the Eagles are up there uh, because when you look at it right now, they have a top 10 pick. Uh, and okay. If they have a top 10 pick and Sewell's off the board, uh, you know, is there another offensive lineman they could look at? Um, you know, I, I think that there's, this is just a draft where there's pretty good depth. Uh, you know, I really like some of the options in the first round, but the top 10, there's not 10 true top 10 guys. I think, you know, Mm -hmm. guys that are definitely should go that high. So it makes it tough in the top 10 when you've got guys that maybe you don't necessarily think are top five talents going to top, top five or top 10 talents, uh, or you don't think are top 10 talents, but that someone has to go in the top 10. So for a team like the Eagles at number seven, that was a little difficult, but ended up going with Jamar chase. Uh, you know, I, it's, Wide receivers two years in a row, I, it's definitely possible, uh, you know, help out that, that offense, that struggling offense right now. It, it'd, be, it'd be fun uh, for, I think, everybody except the rest of the NFC East. Uh, my last question for you on this mock, was there a player, because I know how mock drafts can go sometimes in terms of putting them together. Was there a player it was hard to find, like hardest to find a spot for where you were like, they, they made the top 32 for you, but you were like, man, like, I just don't know where to plug this guy in. Like, I don't know where his fit ultimately is in the first round. I didn't expect this, but it was Kyle Pitts uh, because, you know, you look at it and, uh, you know, pass catch guys that are primarily pass catchers, you know, not including like a TJ Hawkinson because he was so good as a blocker, but primarily pass catchers. uh, You know, those guys, we don't see them go top 10, top 15 very often. Uh, Vernon Davis and Eric Ebron and, you know, guys like that. So it doesn't happen a lot. Uh, but, and then when you look at it, it it's going to take a, a really, uh, you know, unique fit, a team that's going to be open to that type of player. So, you know, working through the top 10, top 15, it wasn't easy to find an obvious landing spot. Now, you know, could we see a team surprise like, you know, in Atlanta or Washington or yeah, I mean, I, Kyle Pitts can fit anywhere. because He's such a mismatch weapon. But trying to find the, the fit that made the most sense was was a little tough. Settled on New England at pick 15, which I didn't think Pitts would fall to 15 uh, when I started doing it. But that's just how it played out. I could, I could definitely uh, see that marriage happening uh, down the road, even though they did take two tight ends on day two this year. I would not rule that one out. Yeah. Uh, all right, guys, let's get into uh, this weekend's takeaways. We'll start with our game ball. Uh, I'll kick things off here. Ben, you were a week too early, maybe. I mean, I shouldn't say that because Jared Patterson had a great week last week, but uh, the Buffalo running back, Jared Patterson, I'm going to speed through this. If you carry the ball 36 times and then you still happen to manage 11.4 yards per carry, uh, what? Uh, He ran for 409 yards, eight touchdowns, came just shy of breaking both records for rushing yards in a game and touchdowns in a game. Uh, The Buffalo running back, diminutive in size, but uh, the production, I mean, is just ridiculous here. Uh, for Jared Patterson this week or this season so far, only a handful of games played, but uh, he has run for over 700 yards in just the last 700 uh, yards, 12 touchdowns the last two weeks, and the <laughs> Buffalo Bulls leading college football in yards per play. I love to see it. And shout out to uh, our buddy Ross Tucker for uh, having the, uh, the call on that game and his the passion <laughs> in his voice uh, when they took out. Uh, Patterson late in that game was just just tremendous. No question. Sounded uh, like a gambler, like missing missing his <laughs> over line. <laughs> oh, please, oh, what are you doing? It was great. Uh, I'll definitely have to hit Ross up on that uh, later this week. Dane, uh, who got your game ball this week? I went with Cornell Powell at wide receiver, the wide receiver for Clemson. You know, no T. Higgins this year. Justin Ross went down with an injury uh, before the season even started. Uh, Clemson knew they had Amari Rogers as the uh, that slot underneath target, but who's going to emerge as a downfield weapon? And Powell's been one of those guys. He's really blossoming now as a senior. He had only 40 career catches entering this season. Now he's at 37 catches this year alone. Uh, he's, he's gone over 100 yards receiving three straight games. 176 yards receiving against Pitt on Saturday. He averaged 29.3 yards per reception. The coaches say that he really had a lot of growing up to do when he arrived uh, on campus in terms of being a worker and developing his confidence. And this past spring, Powell showed up on a mission and, you know, he really wanted to make the, the most of this final year. 
and he hasn't disappointed. He's catching everything. He's making plays over defenders. He had a 70-yard catch against Pitt where he somehow caught the ball over his shoulder with one hand. I, I still don't know how he did it. Um, but I don't, I don't know that he's going to run exceptionally well uh, during the pre-draft process. Uh, but he's gone from off the radar to a potential draft pick uh, with the way he's been playing. Yeah, he uh, he was a guy that I, <clears throat> we hit on our ACC preview. I believe I had him as like our replacement player or something like that. I got in buzz that he had a outstanding spring for yeah. Clemson before COVID-19 had cut uh, spring ball short. And he has uh, followed that up with a strong senior campaign. Uh, ben, who got your game ball? Love me some Cornell Powell because he's six feet tall. You can find him in pregame warmups because he's the one that stands out. He's 23 years old also, so he's definitely one of the more veteran senior guys on the team. Not as strong of a performance as Jarrett Patterson, but Oregon State running back Jamar Jefferson and got to give some love and their big upset come from behind win over Oregon. 22 points in the fourth quarter, but Jefferson, 226 yards with 160 coming after contact. He's had 100 yards in every game this year, guys. Not to mention, huge freshman year two years ago, 1,300 yards, 12 touchdowns, was on everybody's uh, all-freshman team, was kind of hurt last year, didn't play a lot. It's a really interesting player out there in the Pac-12 with a lot of upside, a lot of juice, a lot of home run speed and ability. You don't hear a lot about him once you start digging in. This guy's a big play uh, running back. So so, uh, if you ever catch that Oregon State team on at 1030 on the East Coast, throw it on and check out the run. I was disappointed there was no like late night Pac-12 game on Saturday night after uh, some of the action finished. I was hoping for one that took me into 2:30, and I, I don't there there was none. So uh, missing Oregon State this past weekend, and they played Friday night with the Civil War. All right, let's go to our one play takeaways. Ben, I'll let you kick things off. We'll uh, bounce right back to you. Well, this isn't too special. It's just a, a brutal run play that really crushed the uh, the uh, any comeback chance that Auburn was going to do in the second half in the third quarter. Alabama, Najee Harris had a 39-yard touchdown run off that left-hand side, a brutal double team with Alex Leatherwood and Deontay Thompson. Landon Dickerson climbing to the second level. Harris pressing the hole, vision out the back door, home run speed, making everybody miss in the open field. It was just a, a beautiful run play between the tackles by a lot of NFL prospects. Najee Harris, Leatherwood, Brown, Dickerson, all those guys are playing on Sunday. It was just an impressive play. And to see them all celebrating after the play, man, it just gets me fired up to see the offensive linemen knowing they did their job in a dominant fashion and are excited about it. And I just love seeing that, especially on Saturdays in college. Love that. I'm going to stick in the SEC. I'll go to that uh, LSU Texas A&M game. I watched a good portion of that game, most of it. And uh, the one play that stands out to me, it was kind of silly because, um, you know, obviously Texas A&M ended up winning and pretty decisively. But it was a Terrace Marshall catch and run. Uh, We talked about Terrace Marshall a little bit earlier in the show. And it was a backed up situation. LSU had just gotten a turnover and they go, they marched down the field in two plays. And the first one of those two plays was this catch and run by Marshall. It was a bang eight throw. It was a a quick post. And on the move, TJ Finley hits Marshall. And he had that surge after the catch, that change in speed. That the reason why it sticks with me is that I didn't necessarily see Marshall that way when I studied him on film over the summer. I thought more pure possession guy, but that change in speed, it was kind of reminiscent. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw the play of, uh, I watched the, the Titans and Colts yesterday in the one o'clock slate on Sunday, and A.J. Brown had this long catch and run. It was a similar kind of throw, uh, flipped the side of the field. Marshall kind of had that same kind of juice after the catch that kind of made me go, whoa, okay. He, he went like 45, 50 yards on the catch. Um, he really flipped the field in that one play. Then they come back down. They should have scored a touchdown on the very next throw. It was a great play by TJ Finley, but uh, I'll get to that here in a little bit. Still, the catch and run by Terrace Marshall, uh, that's what stood out to me. That's one my, my, t- uh, my one play takeaway uh, from this game. Dane, uh, what was yours? I'm going to stick in the SEC as well. Uh, pretty impressive day for Missouri running back Larry Roundtree against Vanderbilt. Uh, 160 rushing yards, three touchdowns, 7.6 yards per carry. He also had a 23-yard uh, catch and run. There was one play specifically that stood out. Midway through the second quarter, he ripped off a 21-yard run that really should have been no gain uh, or minimal gain uh, with the, the stacked box. But showed the lateral quickness, the body strength to uh, escape, evade, and then shrug off several would-be tacklers. There had to have been at least three missed tackles on that play alone. Uh, you see the nimble feet. He'll run through contact. Uh, he's patient, but he doesn't waste time. And he's been a workhorse for Missouri. So I feel pretty good that Roundtree is going to be one of the first 
five senior running backs drafted. Mm. Uh, yep. But we're going to have to see which underclassmen declare. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's ultimately going to help us figure out, you know, what the order is going to be. But he's one of the top five senior running backs that I've scouted. Yeah, I, I really like Roundtree uh, on film. Everything I've I've seen from him, I, he kind of reminds me. I've said this before on the podcast multiple times. Reminds me of Damian Harris when he was coming out of mm-hmm. Alabama. I think he's that kind of dirty work runner. Uh, let's go to our down the road freak show. A freshman or a sophomore, not eligible for this year, but a name to file away. Dane, uh, we'll bounce right back to you. Who, who's a guy that stood out to you from uh, the underclassmen ranks this week? I know we've talked about him before, but I wanted to bring up John Mechie again, the yeah. Alabama receiver. Uh, he, he could just continues to produce uh, with Jalen Waddle out. Uh, and just like Devonte Smith, it's not going to blow you away with size, uh, but he knows how to mix his gears and his routes. He gets open. He attacks the football. I don't, I, I didn't know much about his backstory. So it was interesting to learn that he was born in Taiwan. He lived around the world, mostly in Canada, uh, before moving to the United States for high school. Uh, I, I don't know if Mac Jones is going to be in Tuscaloosa next year, but I think Alabama fans can feel pretty good about, uh, their wide receiver depth chart with, uh, Mechie leading the way. Uh, ben, who's yours? And this big old running back from Penn State at six foot, 230 pounds from Florida. Kayvon Lee at 134 yards and a touchdown against Michigan. True freshman, big old boy taking over for Journey Brown and that kind of changing of the guard in Penn State's backfield. I don't really know a whole lot about him, but he had some big plays. He's a big back. Looks like he's got a lot of juice in the open field and ran all over Michigan. So a guy to uh, file away for later. So I mentioned I watched a lot of that LSU uh, Texas A&M game. Look, LSU's got a little bit of a, a quarterback circus right now. They're rotating guys in almost on like a series by series deal. I, I thought that TJ Finley, I don't know if he's operating as efficiently uh, right now, but I, to me, like he, this kid looks the part. He was the number one quarterback in, in the state coming out this past season, recruiting six, uh, six over 240 pounds. He's a really easy thrower. He had some passes in this game where there's bodies around him and he's not deterred. He keeps, keeps his eyes up, steps up into the teeth of the rush and delivers from what I can understand, just kind of listening to the broadcast. It seems like uh, they want him to kind of come along from the mental standpoint and kind of see the field and know where his answers are and all those kinds of things. But from a tool standpoint, uh, I'm excited to continue watching TJ Finley and see if he can continue uh, to develop. Uh, that being said, let's get into our film room recaps here. Uh, one guy that we studied on film over the last week that caught our eye, Ben, uh, we'll go to you to kick things off here. A couple guys I want to hit really fast. Washington defensive end, Zion Tupololo Fetuli. All right, so Tupuola Fatui. Zion Tupuloa Fatui. Okay. I just keep saying it. Whoever's cutting this audio, just take the best pronunciation there. All right. And if I don't get it, just put this series pronunciation <laughs> of it. But really fast, he's 6'3, 280, rocked up, explosive. He's the Pac 12 version of Quiddy Pay. I'm saying it right now. Three games, 15 QB pressures, seven sacks, three force fumbles. Put on San Diego State, Colorado last weekend. Mustafa Johnson for Colorado and San Diego State defensive end Cameron Thomas were all over the place. Really fun battle in the trenches there. They're on opposite sides, but just watch those two. Cameron Thomas, he shedded that ugly number 65 he wore last year, wearing 99 now. Mustafa Johnson, 6'2", 290, senior. He's more of a squatty, stout guy that's kind of light on his feet, uh, rushing from the three-tech spot. But these linebackers, man, I think this linebacker conversation is all over the place right now because there's three I love right now not getting a a whole lot of buzz or uh, hype. That's Grant Stewart from Houston, Antoine Simmons from Michigan State, and Tony Fields II at West Virginia is one of my favorite linebackers in the country, having a huge season for the West Virginia Mountaineers coming over from Arizona. He's 6'1", 220. I went over the weekend and put on some of his Arizona's tape just to see what it looked like to see if maybe I missed something, put on the Stanford tape, the Oregon tape. This guy's all over the field. He's playing will linebacker, but he moves like a safety. He's tough. He's physical. He's an edgy tone setter. He'll cover linebackers and running backs. Great underneath zones. He's a sub rusher, QB spies, excellent short area quickness and play ID to beat backside cutoffs and to attack screens. Really impressive player. He's a fun, fun prospect. But I don't think he's getting enough buzz. Fields and Stewart heading in the Senior Bowl. I'm hoping Simmons gets the call there from Michigan State. Yeah, he's uh, a bunch of names there to hit on, a couple that we'll see uh, down in Mobile. Uh, one other guy we will see down in Mobile that I hit on is the Missouri safety duo. We talked about Tyree Gillespie a lot. I want to talk about Josh Bledsoe, his teammate. And I think Gillespie is the better prospect. He's certainly – I think he's got better tools. But I will say that I don't want to sleep on Bledsoe because this is a guy that can play down in the nickel, um, has done that over the course of, of this season. Just some guys that I saw him matched up one-on-one with. And, again, this is a safety coming down and playing in the slot. Jalen Waddell. 
Devontae Smith, both from Alabama, uh, Kyle Pitts from Florida, Kadarius Toney, Terrace Marshall at LSU, Racy McMath. I mean, some of the be- best playmakers in college football. I watched three games with this Missouri defense, and they were confident leaving him one-on-one against those guys. Did it always go well? Not quite. That being said, the fact that they were willing to leave him there, I think speaks a lot to uh, ultimately the coaching staff's faith in this guy. And then also he's got that ability to hang with running backs, H backs, tight ends, maybe some bigger slots uh, in the NFL at six foot 200. I think he's got a really good feel for playing underneath zone coverage. Uh, I think he's with his eyes to the football. I think he's in good shape. Like I said, I think he's got that skill set to play man to man against backs and tight ends. He's very comfortable up near the box against the run. He's a look. He's definitely a new age, strong safety in terms of how I feel like most of those guys are being used in today's game. He's a good tackler. Is he a starter? Probably not. Probably not a pure three down player, a guy that I would want playing uh, on every down in an ideal scenario. But if you're saying, hey, he's going to play in sub package in our big nickel or big dime and, you know, kind of be a role player from that standpoint. I could see that with Josh Bledsoe, and I liked watching his film. Um, you know, I think that with Tyree Gillespie, I think there's a little bit more volatility there and maybe a little bit more bust factor. With Bledsoe, I think you know what you're getting, and I'll take that, uh, especially in that role. So uh, I did like Josh Bledsoe. Dan, I know you've studied him as well. Um, I don't know if you got any comment on, on Bledsoe, but if not, uh, we can move to your, uh, to your film and recap guy as well. No, I'm glad you talked about him because Gillespie, I agree, the better player, the better prospect, uh, has the more upside. Uh, but Bledsoe is not someone that we should be just dismissing as being, uh, you know, just another guy. I mean, he he has an NFL future uh, for sure. Uh, he and, and a guy who, you know, credit to Ben because I know Ben's been high on him for a while. But Landon Dickerson for Alabama. I mean, he, the medicals are, might be an issue. That, that's something that is the, that's the red flag. That's the asterisk on, you know, uh, having him in my first round, which I never thought I, I, I would, would have, that would have happened. Uh, but studying him last week and then talking to people around the league, uh, this guy has a chance to go in the first round, uh, plain and simple. And it just comes down to the medicals, but he's, uh, you know, his first three years at Florida state couldn't stay healthy last two years at Alabama. He has stayed healthy. I think he's, probably a better guard prospect, but that, that guard center flexibility, it's there. And he, he could probably even kick out and play tackle uh, if you needed him to in a pinch. But I think he's the, he's ideally suited at guard, a, a big brawny blocker, uh, very intelligent. Uh, the toughness is off the charts. A uh, Ben kind of alluded to the, the borderline dirty plays, uh, but he's the type of guy, if, if he's on your team, you love it. If you play against him, he frustrates you because he's he, he he does play so competitive through the through the whistle and so he does not let up. Uh, easy guy to like and teams that really place a value on their interior linemen being smart, tough, uh, scheme versatile. Uh, they're gonna love Landon Dickerson. So um, I, I think with that competitive makeup and the way he's wired, he's gonna go somewhere in a top sixty picks. It's just a matter of how high. Could he sneak into the first round? Yeah, I think it's possible. Just sorting through the draft capital on what it takes, you know, versus Ragnow and Billy Price and Garrett Bradbury and, you know, Cesar Ruiz and all them. I know where does he fall in that pecking order of these centers that go in the first round? Does he have that ability? Yeah, so it's funny that you brought up one of those names, Ben, because as Dane was talking about him, he's still fresh in my mind because I just studied him this morning along with Deontay Brown. And the Frank Ragnow comp actually isn't bad. You know, I think when you look at their, mm. uh, their dimensions, uh, Frank Ragnow also played both guard and center at Arkansas. I think when you look at their skill set and what they kind of bring, Ragnow was a more experienced player just because he was more durable during his time at Arkansas. And the, and the medical, I think, will be big for him uh, in terms of uh, Lander Dickerson. But he's that kind of player. I mean, he's big. He's fit. I mean, he is thick. He carries those pads really well. I mean, he, he looks the part for sure. Um, he's not an explosive athlete, but he, I think he's good enough there across the board. I don't know that you have the same limitations that you would have uh, with Deontay Brown in space, but um, I'll tell you what, with Dickerson, uh, he checks a lot of boxes. And, and, you know, from what I could tell, he is known well for his uh, football intelligence as well as football character. I know when he was at Florida State and the time that he spent away, you know, coaches kind of raved about, uh, you know, hey, look, we're really missing um, what he brings to the off the field as well, not just on the field. So, um, no, Landon Dickerson, a really an interesting prospect, and I'm glad uh, we were able to break him down. And again, he will be uh, at the senior ball, as we talked about earlier in the show. All right, guys, uh, we've talked about a lot of guys. Like I always say, though, let's talk about three more. Let's go on the clock. On the clock. 
Well, back for another edition of On the Clock, our friend Chris McPherson, CMAC. Uh, welcome back. Hope you guys had a, a good holiday weekend, and uh, we'll get things going here to uh, kick things off for On the Clock. You know, still a uh, little bit of a hangover from all the turkey and stuff from the weekend. So, uh, you know, this is a nice way to kind of e- ease back into it here, just to settle in and get to hear some uh, hot takes on uh, whatever the topic du jour is. Well, th- this week we kind of bounced around a couple different topic ideas, and and the one that I landed on was – effectiveness in the red zone. We know that it's one of the most important areas of the game. So which player, which skill player would the group of us uh, take if we wanted somebody in the red zone? Now we took out quarterbacks. So we went running back wide receiver and tight ends. If you could pick one guy to have in the red zone, who are you going to pick? Dane had our first, the first selection. So he will lead us off here this week. Ben had the second pick. I had the third pick, uh, the current score on the leaderboard as I check it. Uh, I have five wins. Ben's got four wins. Dane has three and has not won in about a month and a half. It's been the first week of October uh, since Ben or since Dane came away with a W. But uh, we'll see if Dane can change that as he kicks off this uh, this argument here. Yeah, time time to change that right now. And to be completely honest, I, I was pretty happy I had the first pick uh, for this question because. I think there's a clear answer here, and that's Florida's uh, t- talented tight end, Kyle Pitts. The best way I can sum him up, he's a cheat code. Uh, tight end size, 6'6", 240 pounds, special athleticism, uh, has that natural twitch to him where he can get the upper hand quickly against defenders one-on-one. And his best trait, it's the pass-catching skills. Uh, you know, I, I make sure and not overuse the word elite when talking about prospects, saving it for just the rare occasions where it's really appropriate. And when talking about Pitts' pass-catching skills, elite is the only word that's appropriate. It, it doesn't matter what coverage is doing, what defenders are doing, his body control, focus, the reflexes, uh, they're all at an elite level. And the stats, they match the traits. In the red zone this season, Pitts has been targeted 11 times. He has nine catches, eight of those being touchdowns. No player in college football has more red zone touchdowns this season than Pitts. So the length, the athleticism, the hand-eye coordination. He is the type of pass catcher who is always open, even when he's covered. And that's exactly what you want in the red zone. Look at that. Wow. Strong out of the gate here. So, uh, Fran, any uh... – Kyle Pitts is a, is a great player. He's a dynamic player. He's uh, from the Philly area, C-Mac. He grew up in Philadelphia, went to uh, Abington High School or around the corner from where I live, and then transferred to Archbishop Wood, I believe. Um, but I think when you look – I mean, he's – Certainly one of the most dynamic playmakers in college football. He's automatic down inside the 20. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see if, uh, if that's enough. We'll see if that's enough here because we got. I think we've got three good arguments here to be made. All right, so before we get into Ben's, Dane, if the draft were today and obviously it's not, where is he going? I mean, you know, I think back to where the Titans have gone in recent years. T.J. Hawkinson mm-hmm. went in the top 10, uh, but we didn't have one until the second round this past year. I believe Cole Komet was the first one off the board. So where where is uh, Pitts going to fall in the discussion? Uh, that's that's an interesting question because he's different. You know, he's more of a pass catcher. Where Hawkinson was, uh, you know, such a, a dominant run blocker, and you know, you could leave him out there in any situation. Pitts is more of that hybrid, uh, versatile receiver who you can leave him in line. But the reason you're going to draft him high is because what he can do down the field. So he's not going to be a fit for every offense, at least as a top. 10 pick top 15 pick, which makes it a little difficult to figure out where he's going to be drafted. Uh, He's going to go somewhere top 15, top 20, but you look at the last 15, 20 years, how many pass catching tight ends have gone that high? You know, we've seen, uh, you know, Vernon Davis go five overall. We've seen Eric Ebron go 10 overall, Uh, you know, OJ Howard a few years ago. So there just aren't that many, but I would argue Pitts is right up there, uh, you know, when talking about the best pass-catching tight ends we've seen come out of college uh, in the last few decades. All right, so Ben wore the Dragons hoodie to try to make a, an appeal to begin with. Very good. Always smart. Say, you're on, you're on the board, man. What you got? What do you got for us, Ben? All right, well, you know, Kyle Pitts, impressive player. He's got a great body of work in 2020, leading college football and red zone touchdowns. But let's spread out that body of work to two seasons because the leader over the last two years in the red zone as far as touchdown receptions is the LSU monster, not Jamar Chase, but Terrace Marshall at 6'4", 200 pounds, has incredible size, length, radius, range, which you love to see down in the red zone when things happen faster in tighter spaces. He's not bothered by contact. In the release point, 
in his route stems at the catch point. You need to be tough at the catch point down in the red zone. He knows how to hand fight. He knows how to track the ball. He knows how to adjust the passes, uses his body in that six, four frame exceptionally well, knows how to pluck the ball away from his frame and protect that ball down in the red zone. This guy's got 15 touchdowns in the red zone over the last two years, C-Mac 19 receptions on 24 targets extremely productive on a very small sample set. So he's, he doesn't need a whole lot of opportunities to get that production and make, you know, uh, big plays down in the red zone and considering they've had Justin Jefferson and Jamar chases and Joe Burrow throwing it around. It's Terrace Marshall who actually leads that group as far as red zone production. So what's interesting about that is, is it, you mentioned the stats over the last two years, what's he done more so this year and how much has he been impacted by not having Chase and Justin Jefferson and Joe Burrow. Well, he's been forced to kind of mature and be that go-to guy with Chase opting out and Justin Jefferson heading to the NFL. It's been a little slow with the new quarterbacks. I'm trying to work in the young kids. So the offense hasn't been clicking, obviously, like that prolific 2019 season. You're just not going to get that type of production. But Marshall has been forced to be the guy in an offense that's kind of struggling in a quarterback position that's still figuring it out. He's been productive this year, but I just think it was kind of a quiet unsung name after last year, being that third tier guy. C-Mac, I was surprised to see him leading college football over the last two years in that category. I thought it would be a Devonta Smith or a Waddle or maybe some of the other LSU guys, maybe even a Kyle Pitts who's been prolific the last two, three seasons, but it's actually been Terrace Marshall. And I love all the traits he brings to the field and then using those traits uh, to get the job done. Dane, uh, Ben makes a strong argument there. Uh, what do you got to uh, counteract? Uh, yeah, Marshall's a good player. I mean, I, I like him. Uh, I actually like him better between the 20s than in the 20s. And that's not taking away from him as a red zone threat because I think with his size and his ability to high point and go up and get the football, I, I do think he is a red zone target that can be productive. But with the strides that he has and the downfield skills, I actually like him better uh, between the 20s. So, uh, it, but it is an interesting argument because of the production. Uh, and C-Mac, when he first brought up uh, Terrace Marshall, I thought I saw your eyebrows raise. You're a little bit surprised. The thing with Jamar or with uh, with Terrace Marshall is he was. I mean, he was one of the go-to weapons in the first few weeks last year, and I think he caught six touchdowns in the first three games from Joe Burrow. Then he got hurt. He missed a month. And after that, they never really got in a sink. That's when him and Jefferson really took off uh, with Joe Burrow. So I think when you look at uh, Terrace Marshall, if he doesn't get hurt last year, maybe the uh, you know the narrative might be a little bit different. He did, as we talked about earlier in the show, he did just declare uh, for the 2021 NFL draft. So he will be a part uh, of this draft class. But um, look, Dane brought up one of the most dynamic players in the country at the tight end spot. Ben brought up a, a wide receiver. But let's be real, C-Mac. When you get into the red zone – this field shrinks, becomes more about the run game. And who better to be a monster in the red zone than a six foot two, 230 pound running back who just happens to be on the maybe the perhaps the best college football team in the country. And that's Najee Harris from Alabama. Ben talks about this story often when talking about Najee Harris. Ben, uh, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you saw him on a flight. When he was in high school, you were going to an Alabama game. He was a recruit going to go visit Alabama. And you were like, oh, who's this defensive end next to me? And you look the kid up. Oh, yeah, he's a running back. And when you look at Najee Harris, that's the build that you're talking about, C-Mac, at 6'2", 230. But then you go into what he has done on the field. He was in a three-man committee back in 2018 with Damian Harris and Josh Jacobs, who have now turned into primary ball carriers in the NFL, ran for 783 and four touchdowns, comes back last season as the guy, second-team all-conference behind CEH, catches 27 passes for 300 yards, seven touchdowns, runs for another 1,313 touchdowns, really, really productive, comes back as a senior, and that has continued. C-Mac, we, we already talked about some of these numbers. Ben talked about what uh, Terrace Marshall has done in the red zone. Kyle Pitts has done in the red zone. Look at Najee Harris in the red zone. 26 red zone rushing touchdowns over the last two years. That leads college football from the running back position. Then you get to the – as a receiver as well, he's caught five red zone touchdowns. That's the second most <clears throat> of all running backs, only behind Coastal Carolina's C.J. Maribel, who's got seven. You look at what Najee Harris has done as a runner and as a receiver, and this isn't just like all little dump offs. They ran, I remember that one of the biggest plays – from me, from that LSU-Alabama game last year, 
was that Najee Harris catching that sail route. It was sort of like a 19-yard touchdown uh, on a corner route against LSU, showing off that versatility. Again, at 6'2", 230, he's fumbled one time coming into this year in his entire career. So you talk about ball security being so important in the red zone. If I'm talking about what I want inside the 20, I want a big hammer. I want a guy that can be versatile, catch the ball, as well as run it between the tackles. He's a power runner. Guys bounce off him at the point of contact. I think Najee Harris, to me, kind of takes the cake here. We're talking about overall red zone production. No one has put the ball in the paint more inside the 20 in the last two years than Najee Harris. Strong, strong. Fran, Fran, remember when uh, we did the the short yardage on the clock? Yeah. Uh, Who who won that? Wasn't that that Ben? And who did Ben pick? He went with Deontay Brown, the left yes. guard. For, yes, that is really that Alabama best. offensive line deserves so much credit. And Najee, Najee's a good player, but that offensive line, man, they their ability to create holes with Deontay Brown, Landon Dickerson, uh, you know, Leatherwood out there. I mean, it's that 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 to me is what make part of what makes Najee so effective down there. So I, I like Najee, but I don't know that offensive line. That, that, that's a strong selling point. Also, Sarkeesian's just scheming guys open. You know, to, it's just say, uh, it's I, manufactured I, touches. Yeah. I want to see how many defensive linemen were on the ground for that sale route against LSU. He made a diving touchdown against the linebacker. I, I don't know how many uh, how many guys were that, on the ground on that one. That, that was a good – yeah, no, he is a very capable receiver, no question yes. about it. But, you know, it, when you talk about running backs in the red zone, eh, it, pretty blocking dependent, right? I mean, you know, it's it's something that factors into the equation. And the red zone's 20 yards, guys, all right? We're not giving Najee the ball when we get inside the five. What are you doing when you're at the 19 and the 20 and you've still got all that yardage to cover ground on? We need some speed. We need some length. We need the Kyle Pitts. We need the Terrace Marshalls of the world. You know, it's a it's a receiver league. We have a running back, a tight end, and a receiver to choose from here, C-Mac. What's your, what's your flavor? Oh, look at this here. So what um, – you're not going to give the ball to Harris, you know, you know, 19-yard touchdown. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, all, all very, very good arguments. Ben, was, was that story about the airplane ride, you know, truth fiction or, you know, I know you usually do the, the first man off the bus, the most impressive uh, on the hoof. Was that it was one? somebody that was comparable size, height, weight. It was not Najee, but it, it was Najee? a similar situation. Oh. It was Dylan Moses. Oh, it was Dylan Moses. Yeah, <laughs> he was listed as an athlete at the time. And uh, was, right. was thinking about maybe uh, switching to the offensive side of the ball. But the, the point remains true. The point <laughs> remains probably true. probably going to lose me this whole thing just because oh, I got geez. one detail wrong on that damn oh, story. No, like one small detail. <laughs> Wasn't going to say anything, but if you wanted to check the receipts and fact check, C-Mac, I'll, I'll – I'll play the part. <laughs> Listen, I don't mind being live fact-checked, right? It's just all cards on the table. We're not doing any kind of lying here on this uh, on this podcast. And I got to say, C-Mac, when you start hot and then you go on, on a big skid, a lot like the Jacksonville Jaguars with that win and 10 straight losses, the wheels are coming off. You're starting to doubt yourself. And I hear a lot of doubt in Dane's voice this week. He's starting to second-guess <laughs> his thoughts, his evaluations. Um, so, you know, but, it, but that happens when you go on a skid. So he hey, needs to get a W. A- this is supposed to be a sober podcast. What are you? What are you doing? No way. I, I've been more confident about this one than uh, you know any of the other on the clocks we've done. Kyle Pitts is just—he's a cheat code, especially in the red zone. He, he cannot be defended. All right, so I guess uh, it's time to shine on my end, and I, I think what won it was one of the counter arguments here was Fran comes in strong with Najee Harris, lays out the groundwork, and then Dane comes in, guns blazing, saying it's all about the Alabama offensive line, bringing up the pass on the clocks, bringing up all the future NFL players are all along that line. So that, on top of the fact that his case for Kyle Pitts is very strong, Dane Brugler, you know, he's going to get back in the win column here, give him a little boost of confidence, and, uh, you know, you know, even things up here in this season-long matchup. So uh, Dane Brugger gets the win this week. Finally, back in C-Max good grace. It's a good pick. It's a good pick. No one's going to argue. Kyle Pitts and what he did in the red zone last weekend really showed off, you know, the full skill set down there. He is a dynamite player, uh, regardless of where they are on the field. Well, uh, big win for Dane. Gets in a, gets the match a little bit closer. C-Mac, once again, thanks so much for joining us here on the Journey of the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the Draft Mailbag. 
All right, let's wrap things up here on our draft mailbag. Again, the best way to throw us your support is going to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a, a rating. Leave us a comment. If you leave us a question or a mock draft, we'll break it down right here. And I wanted to give a shout-out to Sean Wolford, who left a five-star review saying, great podcast. If you've got trouble following prospects during the season, they break down not just the studs, but the mid-to-late-round prospects as well. Thanks so much, Sean. I know you always feel like you're prepared going into the draft season. Now, uh, throw on a mock draft as well. Just wanted to breeze through uh, some of these big picks. First-round pick for the Eagles, 19th overall, South Carolina corner J.C. Horn declared for the draft a week ago. I'm a big fan of J.C. Horn. He's really physical, really competitive. He's got inside-out versatility. He's a big kid, uh, you know, was able to make some plays on the ball this year, which was really important for him coming into the season. Didn't have a pick coming into the year, but uh, showing that ability to make plays on the ball while also having that competitiveness and that versatility, I'm a big fan of J.C. Horn. Uh, Chaz Surratt, linebacker from North Carolina in the second round, Really love this player as well. Yeah, this is a, a very active, tough, physical, super explosive athlete who's still new to the linebacker spot. Has only been playing defense for two years in college. Started as a true freshman quarterback there for the Tar Heels, then made the switch over to the defensive side. And this guy gets after it in the run game. He's long, he's lean, he's built like Anthony Barr, but he can make those uh, sideline to sideline plays. Still kind of feeling his way from an instinction st- instinctive standpoint, but really love watching him play. Uh, Richard LeCount, the safety from Georgia in the third round. Hard hitter, runs the alley, known for his ability to impact the catch point in that way. I'd like to continue still, you know, kind of evaluating his tape, get a better feel for his overall athleticism, but no qualms about him in round three. Uh, Kylan Hill, the running back from Mississippi State in round four. He is a pass catcher through and through. He can impact the game in a lot of different ways. He's not a dynamic straight line athlete, but he's really smooth in and out of breaks, and he's got good hands. Uh, I like Kylan Hill um, for, you know, being that kind of change of pace back. I think that's what he can be at the next level. Uh, Ole Miss wide receiver Elijah Moore. This guy is electric with the ball in his hands. I mean, he's dynamite in a bottle. Just watching him, uh, you know, when you see his ability to take the top off a of defense, but then also anytime he gets the ball in his hands, look out. He is a touchdown waiting to happen. And then rounding out the draft with some role players here, uh, Tyreek Smith, the pass rusher from Ohio State, Michigan corner Ambry Thomas, Colorado defensive tackle Mustafa Johnson, and then Florida corner Trey Dean. Trey Dean is big, long, physical. He's like 6'3". He's over 200 pounds, has nickel experience, outside corner experience, even safety experience. So he gives you that versatile piece on the back end of the secondary. And then Ambry Thomas, a really nice, physical, natural press corner. So a really good draft there uh, from Sean Wolford. Again, if you've got uh, a mock draft or something you want us to, to hit on, all you have to go do is go on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, leave that mock draft in the comments. We'll break it down right here on the show. All right, guys, thanks so much for joining us once again here on the Journey of the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. For Ben, Dane, C-Mac, and Anthony Patch, we'll see you next week, or actually later this week, right here on the show.